found in 1 John, we will begin by reading verse 5 of chapter 1, and we'll go until verse 6 of chapter 2. 1 John 1, 5 to chapter 2, verse 6. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not enough. Is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He, hath, he that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoso keepeth His word... In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and later to the preaching of his holy word. Dear congregation, John Bunyan, the well-known Puritan preacher and author, wrote a treatise called The Work of Jesus Christ as an Advocate. In the introduction to this treatise, Bunyan acknowledged that in the time of writing it, Christian theologians and writers of his day placed a very strong emphasis on Jesus Christ as a king as a prophet and as a priest, and the glories derived from his threefold office. According to Bunyan, important descriptions or titles of Christ, such as him being an advocate before the Father, were neglected. Concerning Christ as an advocate, Bunyan said that of all the excellencies, which God the Father has conferred upon Jesus Christ our Lord, this of His, being an advocate with the Father for us, is not the least, though to the shame of saints it may be spoken, the blessed benefits thereof have not with diligence and fervent desire been inquired after as they ought. From Bunyan's time to our own, not many books or treatises have been written on the subject. 
This means then that in the words of Bunyan, the glories derived from Christ's advocacy as not are present in the minds and in the hearts of believers as they should. But what about us? Or what about you in this afternoon who come and are a hearer of God's word? Are you familiar with the glorious advocacy of Jesus Christ before the Father? More importantly, are you an object of Christ's advocacy before the Father? If you are not, then you need to be one. The Word of God says that it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Not only that, but all your sins have been and will have been recorded in a handwriting of ordinances against you, which is contrary to you. Colossians 2.13-14. The question is, what will you do? To whom will you call upon when you have to face God? To speak on your behalf, who will do it? Children, this is what an advocate is. An advocate is someone who is called alongside you to help you and defend you as he speaks on your behalf. On the other hand, if you are object of Christ's advocacy, may the Lord give you in this afternoon a fresh sight to the glories of our glorious, our wonderful intercessor, Jesus Christ. Thus, this afternoon, with the help of the Holy Spirit, all of us, both unbelieving friends and believing brethren, we will see that Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, is the only sufficient and necessary advocate between God and men. The title of this sermon is Christ, our Advocate. And we will take a look at four headings. First, we will see His defendants, who His defendants are. Secondly, His office. Thirdly, His attribute. And fourthly, His work as an advocate. Let us begin by seeing His defendants, who His defendants are. According to our text, among those who Christ advocates for are initially the believers. This is what the context of our passage and our passage itself tell. In his attempt to promote assurance of faith, as we saw early in this morning, John uses small tests for assurance or marks of grace. In verses 8 to 10 of chapter 1, again, as we saw this morning, the beloved apostle states that a person in whom God's word dwells is a person who admits both the sins that he has and the sins that he commits, which he confesses before God in search of forgiveness and cleansing. In order then to prevent deliberate commission of sin, John clarifies to his little children what his intent in writing these words is. These things write I unto you, that ye sin not. 
verse 1 of chapter 2. John goes on to say that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because of the reference, we have an advocate and he is the propitiation for our sins. We can see that it is the members of the congregation to whom John himself unites along with the apostolic commission. They are the ones who have Jesus Christ as their advocate. They are in possession of the advocacy of Jesus Christ. But there is something important to note here as well. The fact that an unbeliever does not have in the present Jesus Christ as his advocate, it doesn't mean that he cannot be advocated for. Unbelievers actually fulfill the profile of those who can be Jesus Christ's defendants. Certainly, John is speaking to the congregation of believers, but he used a general statement. John did not say, if any believer sin, or if any child of God sin. John said, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The apostle here is going from the general to the specific, from the congregational level to the personal level. Farther in our sermon, in our four subheading, we will take a look at the actual scope of Christ's advocacy. For now, it is enough to say that you, my unbelieving friend, you can have Jesus as an advocate because you need it. You need it. You have committed sin against the Lord, as we saw in this morning. The if any man sin is a description that fits every single person in this room. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And if you are one of those who justify yourself by blaming your sin on your covenantal relationship with Adam, then Romans 3.23 will remind you that all have sinned, including every single person in this room, and therefore come short of the glory of God. Unbeliever, imagine that you are walking through the old wild west perhaps during the early 1900s and then you hear how the sheriff of the town publicly describes an outlaw that has been wanted you become curious about it you want to take a look at the portrait of this wanted outlaw then you look at the picture attached or fixed at a wooden pole and once you take a look at this portrait guess what Guess who this outlaw is? Exactly. You, yourself. You are an outlaw who is wanted before the courtroom of God. You unbelieving friend. If you have not repented, if you have not confessed your sin in true repentance as we saw in this morning, then you are an outlaw 
before the courtroom of God. God has a charge. God has ordinances written against you that will be against you once you face the holy, holy, holy God. In order to be defended by this glorious advocate, you don't need to pay a salary with your own works, which, of course, you can't. You don't need to cleanse yourself, which you can't. You don't need to clean your bad record, which you can't. Christ says, Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you say, I cannot go to him. The things I have done are horrible in his sight. I might never get his forgiveness. Then Christ says, And him that cometh to me, I will in no ways cast out. Therefore, if you are an unbeliever, one thing is sure at this point. You fulfill the profile of those to whom the great advocate will plead for. But another thing is sure as well. Christ is a very able and willing Savior. As Wilhelmus Abrakel said, You ought therefore to be the more earnest to go outside of yourself. Forsake your ungodly life. Turn to and entrust yourself to Him in order that He may convert you, reconcile you, sanctify you by His Spirit, and thus save you. If there are still doubts about the willingness of Christ, the glorious advocate before the Father, then Brackel one more time says, search the entire Bible. Search the entire Bible and take note whether he has ever refused grace to anyone or sent any away who came to him in truth to be reconciled, sanctified, and saved. Search the scriptures. If you find a person who has come in true repentance before Christ, then you will find that Jesus will never cast this person away. Now, before moving on, it is necessary at this point to define what advocacy really means. What does John refer to when he calls Christ an advocate with the Father? We also mentioned this for the children, but we will take a look at this in a deeper way. Let's take a look at his office. We saw, what, or we saw who his defendants are, and now we will take a look at what his office is. Most of us are familiar with the threefold division of Christ as a king, a priest, and a prophet. But then where did his advocacy fit in this threefold division? The answer is that Christ's advocacy is an expression of Christ's priesthood. The concept which connects the priesthood of Christ and the advocacy of Christ is that of intercession. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25 says, But this man, because he continued ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Christ, as speaking up on the Old Testament ceremonies of the tabernacle, gives the idea of spiritual nearness. Spiritual nearness. The people are being brought near to God because of the ministry of the mediator, of the priest. The presence of Jesus at the right hand of the Father is the warrant that His perfect work, finished perfectly, gives full entrance of the people to the presence of God. Because remember, sin in the Scriptures has exile as judgment. So the mediator is the person who can bring the people close to God. That person can close the gap between God and his people because his people has been sent away on account of judgment. Christ's advocacy adds an important nuance to his priesthood. That is the nuance of an intercessory defense and help. Christ's body can approach the Father while being safe, spiritually speaking. And when I say Christ's body, I speak about the church. We all can approach God the Father being spiritually safe. The Greek term for advocate, which is also used to refer to the Holy Spirit, speaks of a person that is summoned to one's side. It is one who is called to one's aid. It refers to one who pleads for another's cause before a judge. It's a pleader, a counselor for defense, a legal assistant, or a lawyer. Children, sometimes when a person breaks the law, that person is called before a judge. The judge will try to punish that person but the person being accused has the right to call someone next to him who can advocate on behalf of the lawbreaker. This is what an advocate means in this specific case. Bonian, again, here is particularly helpful. He will tell us that, according to our passage, there are some things that need to be understood in Christ's ministry as an advocate. We need to begin but by saying that God is a judge and that he is sitting on his throne. Secondly, the text also supposes that the saints as well as the sinners are summoned before God's court. Thirdly, it also supposes that there is an accuser, one that will carefully gather up the faults of all men. Fourthly, those who commit sin cannot dare to attempt to appear at this court by themselves. No man can plead his own cause. Fifthly, there is a tendency in Christians when they have sinned to forget that they have an advocate with the Father. Sixthly, John wants us to remember that to believe that Jesus Christ is an advocate for us when we have sinned is the next way to support and strengthen our faith and hope. 
constantly believing, reminding yourself that Jesus Christ is your advocate before the Father, will strengthen and furnish your faith. Seventhly, if Jesus Christ as advocate pleads our cause, no matter how dark it is, no matter how black it is, He is able to win His cause before God. This He will do for our joy and the confounding or the shame of our adversary. Again, children, perhaps you have read um, an Old Testament book called Zechariah. Especially in chapter 3, Joshua, the high priest, was in the presence of the angel of the Lord while being resisted and accused by Satan. There the Lord rebuked Satan and defended the high priest. Joshua's filthy garments with which he stood before the angel were changed. The Lord said to Joshua, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I will clothe thee with change of raiment. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. But then in verse 5 of Zechariah chapter 3, we read this at the end. And the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord stands by those who are accused by Satan. The angel of the Lord stands by those who have believed in him and are accused by Satan. Christ is not only a glorious advocate, but he is also a holy one, as we just saw. This brings us to our third point, his attribute. Our passage, when speaking of Christ as an advocate, refers to him as the righteous. We know, of course, that Jesus Christ, being God himself, has many glorious attributes. But our passage wants to highlight one in particular, his righteousness. By Jesus being righteous, our passage refers to his active obedience of the law of God. But also refers to the fact that Jesus is one who defends his own in a just way. Jesus will never appeal before God the Father in an unjust way. What is certain is that both apply here. He is righteous because that is part of his character. That's who Jesus is. But also he is righteous because when exercising his advocacy, he pleads before God his Father in a righteous way. As you, as an unbeliever, have you ever wondered if all your sins can truly be forgiven? Do you find it hard to believe that a terrible sin or sins you have committed can indeed be forgiven? Do you get discouraged by thinking that any of your sins might be impossible to reach by the grace of God? Find comfort in Jesus Christ, the righteous. No sin will ever surpass the measure of the righteousness of Christ. Yes, God is a three times holy judge 
who does not hold the guilty guiltless. He is no respecter of persons. He accepts no bribe. He judges with a justice that can find no comparison on the earth. But that is why when the Lord punished sin, the sin of his people in Jesus Christ, such punishment was complete and exhaustive. The Lord left no sin of any member of his people unpunished. An omniscient, omnipresent, holy, 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 righteous God would never, ever, ever execute justice in a defective manner. The punishment that God's justice determined as just because of sin, all that punishment was unleashed on the person of Jesus Christ. And in his person and work, the Lord Jesus Christ was totally pleasant before his Father. Again, dear unbelieving friend, go to Jesus Christ. Take refuge in him. For the wrath of God comes upon sinners who have not repented and put their trust in Jesus. As a Puritan said, the arms of faith undress me and strip me on my own righteousness, while they put on me the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. You need to have the righteousness of Christ in order to be delivered from the judgment that your sin has brought you under. And even though you don't know when that day will be, the scriptures are clear when they affirm that one day you will have to be summoned in the presence of God. You will need to see God face to face. On the other hand, my brothers and sisters in Christ, concerning the righteousness of the Lord as an attribute of His character, no human court has ever seen an advocate with such sense of righteousness. No judicial setting has ever witnessed such an advocate as Jesus Christ, the righteous. Robert Candlish, a Scottish minister, said, In any court in which I had a cause to maintain, I would wish to have a righteous advocate. No less than I would desire a righteous judge, would I welcome a righteous advocate. I do not want an advocate who will flatter me. I do not want one to tell me smooth things and lead me on the ice, disguising or evading the weak points of my plea, putting a fair face on what will not stand close scrutiny and touching tenderly what will not bear rough handling, getting up untainable lines of defense, and keeping me in good humor till disaster or ruins come. Give me an advocate who will tell me the truth. And tell me the truth on my behalf. One who will deal truly with me and for me. And fairly represent my case. Give me an advocate who much as he may care for me. Cares for honesty and honor. For law and justice. Still more, 
Give me an advocate, not afraid to vex or wound me for my safety, for my good, whatever his name. Let him be the honest, the upright, the righteous, Jesus Christ. How wonderful Jesus Christ, the righteous, is. Now there is something else that remains to be clarified regarding how his advocacy works. Are those who enjoy an advocate of Jesus Christ all the inhabitants of the earth? All those who have dwelt above the earth? Let us take a look at his work. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we read that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here, Christ's advocacy is connected to his propitiation. With regard to the term propitiation, it is Christ who is called that way. He is the propitiation for our sins. The term propitiation, again, must be understood in light of the Old Testament imagery. More specifically, in relationship to the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. There we read that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies only once a year, and he sprinkled the Lamb's blood upon the mercy seat. As we know, congregation, one of the elements contained in the ark was the table, was the two tablets of the law. Those tables represented the law of God, and the blood covered the transgressions that have been made against that holy and perfect law. So when the blood covered the mercy seat and the transgressions against the law of God, the wrath of God was appeased. His wrath was removed over his people. God's benevolence was renewed over his people. This means that when we speak of Christ as the propitiation, we speak of him as removing the wrath of God upon the sins of his people. Christ represents the removal of God's wrath over his people. John links Christ's advocacy with him being the propitiation. It means that Christ defends his people by appeasing the wrath of God over them, by giving them full acceptance, full favor, full love from God the Father. What a glorious advocate Jesus Christ is. Here then comes an important question. On which sinners specifically? On whom has Christ sprinkled his blood, which has removed the wrath of God? And on whom does the wrath of God continue to be on account of sin? This is the question, the question I'm sorry, that John answers in the phrase, and not only for our sins only, but for the sins or for those of the whole world. The very meaning of the term propitiation, the removal of God's wrath, tells us that it does not apply to all the people 
that has ever lived upon the face of the earth. Why not? Well, because there are other instances in scriptures in which we see that the wrath of God is upon or above certain people. Ephesians 5, 6 says, The wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Colossians 3, 6, For the wrath of God will come upon the children of disobedience. If the propitiation of Christ were applied to all men, then how is it that the wrath of God is still and forever be upon certain men? From this evidence of Scripture, we infer that here the term world used by John does not mean every person who has ever lived upon the earth. If someone objects, saying, but it is clear that John has the whole world in view, as in John 3.16, where we see God the Father loving the world. The answer is in John 11.51-52. There, John is commenting on the words of Caiaphas, and this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So in First John chapter 2, verse 2, we find a formula. And that formula is, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John 11, 51 and 52 uses the same formula. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together. And then he is going to specify. In one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. When John used here the expression for the sins of the whole world, he was teaching the church, his audience, that the work of Christ did not exclude people from any ethnicity or background or geographical location because the church that he is writing to was a church that had a very exclusivist tendency, so to say. So by saying this, John was teaching his congregation that the advocacy of Christ and the efficacy of his advocacy was reaching people from the whole world, sinners from the whole world. As the canons of Dort speak on the second half of doctrine, Articles 3 and 8, Christ's propitiation is sufficient to remove God's wrath over the whole world. But it is savingly efficient on his elect. Propitiation was intended by God to be efficient only in those to whom he would elect. Finally, to you who listen the gospel Sunday after Sunday and have not been saved by the Lord, to you who wrestle in your mind wondering, did God chose me? 
to you as to the rest of us, scriptures command us to repent and believe. While God is sovereign in his salvation, God saves men according to the nature of men. God gave us intellect, affections, and will. They must be exercised by us in response to the gospel message. Of course, they must be exercised upon the influence and work of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean nonetheless that you will not use your will. Faith and repentance are an exercise that you do in response of a work that God, through His Holy Spirit, does in your whole being when He saves a person. So if you are, or if you feel, that the Holy Spirit is making impressions upon your heart, if you are being convinced of your sin by the Word of God, if you are being led to think about Christ more and more, if you are being brought to low places in your soul and in your life, if God is choosing you time after time, His way, His way to heaven, then probably the Holy Spirit is working upon your soul. But He is working or He will work according to the nature of man. He won't do violence to you. So if the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of any person in this place, go before the Lord in prayer. Struggle or wrestle rather as Jacob with the angel. Go to his presence. Go in prayer before him because the Lord might be calling you. The Lord might be calling you to him. And if you are a person that attends church and listens preaching after preaching, and you feel or you don't have assurance of salvation, then the worst thing you can do is to abandon the church. Because one thing is sure, God uses means to work salvation. And the preaching of the word is a means that he has established to save people. So if you abandon the preaching of the word, you are abandoning the means that he has given to his church to save his people. So continue to, to attend church faithfully. Continue to come to church to be under the preaching of God's word. Wrestle with God through prayer and ask Jesus Christ to be your advocate if you are an unbeliever in this afternoon. Jonathan Edwards said something very interesting in this regard. He said that even if you don't know whether God has chosen you to live or not, at least don't do one thing. You yourself don't choose to die. If you struggle, if you don't know, if you are one of the elect of God, at least you don't exercise your will in choosing death. Go before the Lord. Ask Him to show you the way to life. Ask Him to help you to believe and repent. Go before Him and ask Him to render you alive. Finally, believer, 
What a great comfort it is to know that the Lord has chosen us for himself. Just as obtaining my salvation did not depend on me, it does not depend on me to lose it. Any single believer will be eternally secure because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He will never lose a case. Jesus will never lose one soul that he pleased on behalf of. He deals truthfully with us. And every matter he deals with in our lives will result in God the Father being eternally pleased with us. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a glorious advocate thy Christ is. Help us so that the glories derived from this office and from this ministry that he has before thee may dwell in our minds, in our hearts constantly. Heavenly Father, may many in this place may many relatives and friends of the people who are here in this place may many of them come to know Jesus as their advocate if so thou art pleased with heavenly father when we deal with texts like the one we opened and read and tried to study during this afternoon we are entering into holy ground because who will know thy mind? Who knows? Who can understand thy mind, thy plans? As Spurgeon said, if only we could remove a piece of the clothing of anybody and see if they have the mark of election or not. But doing so would also proved to be foolish because thou art the only one who has the sovereignty and the jurisdiction to do so help us Lord so that we may be faithful in preaching your gospel help us remain and dwell in the exercise of the means of grace that thou hast given to thy church and help us trust that it is you who work through them because the glory should be to you alone. Father, dealing with a doctrine like this might be difficult for our minds, so help us rest in the comfort that as thou hast saved us, thou will continue to save and that as the gospel has been powerful to work in our souls, it will continue to be powerful in the souls of others. Help us not to be ashamed of this glorious message. And help us to preach it with the confidence that thou hast chosen people from every tribe, from every nation. And the fact that you have done so should lead us with confidence that thy word won't come back to you.
being void. Father, help us and assist us in our evangelistic efforts. And may thy name be glorified here in this congregation, but also in those places where thou lead us to serve thee. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.